Thursday, July 26, 2018. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon. And tonight we discuss the mysterious Voynich Manuscripts. Binnicky Manuscript 408 in the Yale University Collection. A late medieval herbal, alchemical, and astrological book written in an unknown language and illustrated with pictures of plants and astronomical arrangements that are not of this world. Authorship was originally attributed to Roger Bacon, 1214 to 1292, but carbon dating placed the manuscript in the early 15th century. John Dee and Edward Kelly have been suggested because of their similar Enochian language creation, but... There is no proof of their involvement in the creation, although they may have had something to do with transferring it, uh, uh, the document. Uh, Mysterious Manuscript has fascinated both scholars and amateur researchers alike, with, solu- with uh, solutions announced every year since 1943 when the U.S. government codebreakers attempted to decipher it. A new solution was announced just a week before this broadcast and has already been discredited. (laughs) The main reason most experts fail seems obvious to a hermetic scholar. The Voynich manuscript was not written in cipher. It was written in a language and in an alphabet that has no analog on Earth or in this earthly dimension. The key to finding the origin of the Voynich material might be found in another mysterious manuscript published in 1670. We will read this revelation as our contribution towards solving the mystery. So, put on your Indiana Jones fedora and listen in. And I've got my Indiana Jones fedora on. (laughs) The same one I wore when we made Beyond Lemuria at Mount Shasta. Uh, Yes, the Voynich Manuscript would make a good Indiana Jones or Robert Langdon adventure. And we could call it pulp fiction or perhaps parchment fiction in more ways than one. It has been seriously suggested that the whole thing was a hoax from the beginning when it was created over 400 years ago. The people who proposed this hoax theory are inside-the-box thinkers who cannot imagine anything beyond what they already know. A veritable army of experts in linguistics and cryptography have attacked the mysterious manuscript since World War II when it became an on-the-job training project for what was to become NSA in the Cold War era. Actually, these World War II codebreakers had and were using to understanding the Voynich mystery. It was right in front of them. It was a program that the War Department had used since World War I. They used Native American soldiers speaking over field telephones or walkie-talkies in their native languages. You remember the, the Wind Talkers movie uh, recently about the, about the Navajos in World War II, but the, 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 the Choctaws were doing it in World War I with field telephones because the Germans were tapping into field telephones. Now, these languages were so isolated that German and Japanese listeners had no way of deciphering the meaning of the transmissions. Well, the Voynich manuscript text is a written analog to this process. 
it is written in a different language with its own strange alphabet. It cannot be deciphered because it is not written in cipher. And until we find someone who reads and understands that strange language, we will not understand the Voynich manuscript. But before we speculate on the orange or on the origins of language X, let's go to David Kahn's 1967 classic, The Codebreakers, for a summary of our pulp parchment adventure. The longest, the best known, the most tantalizing, the most heavily attacked, and most resistant, and the most expensive of historical cryptograms remains unsolved. It fills an anonymous, untitled volume that has been called the most mysterious manuscript in the world. In 1962, a rare book dealer, Hans B. Krauss of New York, attracted worldwide attention when he asked $160,000 for this book that no one could read. The volume itself is unpresupposing. A large octavo of about six to nine inches. It has 204 pages. 28 others are lost. Its covers of vellum, like the leaves, are off. Dozens of tiny female nudes, astrological diagrams, and about 400 drawings of fanciful plants illuminate the book in blue, dark red, light yellow, and brown, and especially vivid green. Running among these decorations is the text itself. The manuscript somewhat resembles an herbal, a book common in the Middle Ages, listing plants with medicinal properties and often giving recipes for extracting drugs from them. Well, at first glance, the text that is at the heart of the mystery appears to be no problem. It does not look cryptic. It looks like ordinary late medieval handwriting. The symbols preserve the general form and letters of that time, which they are not. And they are like old friends whose names are on the tip of one's tongue. The writing flows smoothly, as if a scribe were copying an intelligible text. The symbols do not seem to have been printed one by one. In the most cursory examination of a single page, the eye recognizes the same letters again and again, and then it sees repeated groups and even repeated words, sometimes with slightly different endings. Now, all this sounds as if the text, if not in a known language disguised um, to the modern eye by the unfamiliar handwriting, should be some easily ascertained tongue. Yet scholars in the most recondite languages have stated that they could not understand it. Paleographers have declared that the script was not known to them. And cryptoanalysts, whose frequency counts of the approximately 29 symbols, some blend into others and are hard to define, looked like those of ordinary monoalphabetic substitution and who laughed at themselves when they spotted all these repetitions that, and they thought this would be simpler than the puzzle cryptograms in newspapers. And they turned away in chagrin with their, when, their, uh, uh, when their attempt to resolve the text into church Latin, in the Middle English, or, Longa, or language to dock, or some other appropriate tongue failed utterly. This is not to say that no one has ever claimed to have solved it. Indeed, one solution 
that was announced temporarily transformed the manuscript into perhaps the most important document in the history of science. Until, unfortunately, it, as well as the others, had been disproved. Mystery has beclouded the manuscript since its recorded history began, and that was on August 19, 1666, when Johannes Marcus Mercy, the highly respected rector of the University of Prague, sent the book to his former teacher, Athanasius Kircher, the most famous Jesuit scholar of his time. Kircher had three years earlier published a book on cryptology and the universal language and had boasted of having solved the riddle of hieroglyphics. In a letter accompanying the book, Marcy recalled that the former owner of the book had sent Kircher a portion of the text for possible solution. To that work, the owner devoted unflagging toil, and he relinquished hope only with his life. But this toil was in vain, for such sphinxes as these obey no one but their master. Except now this token, such as it is, and long overdue though it be, and my, with, and, uh, my affection for you, and first through its bars, if there be any, with your wanted success. Bars there were, but Kircher, who never shrank from bragging of what he thought were his successes, did not burst through them. And for this, his silence is quite eloquent. Now, Marcy wrote that the manuscript had been bought for 600 ducats by the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II more of a scholar than a ruler. Rudolph founded observatories for Tycho Bray and Johannes Kepler. He established a botanical garden, set up an alchemical laboratory, to which he invited numberless scientists, and the presence of the manuscript at his court in Prague was later proved by the discovery in a margin of the autograph of Johannes de Tepenze, a bohemian scientist, who was a favorite of Rudolf. And Marcy also reported the belief that the author of the manuscript was Roger Bacon, the English Franciscan friar who had lived from about 1214 to 1294. Now, Bacon had speculated centuries before they became reality on the possibility of microscopes and telescopes, motorboats, horseless carriages, and flying machines. And an earlier Leonardo da Vinci. Popular legend credited him with great magical abilities, reputation probably enhanced by his extensive writing on alchemy. He interests modern science because of his precocious emphasis on the observation of natural phenomena, so unlike the priory scholasticism of his time. He is not to be confused with Sir Francis Bacon, the English statesman who lived from 1561 to 1626, and who wrote the famous essays, one of which was one of last, and largely shaped modern, modern science though the, through the influence of his philosophy. Although that philosophy, insisting upon induction and experimentation, does bear a strange kinship to that of his medieval namesake. Presumably, Roger Bacon would have written the manuscript in cipher to conceal secrets that, if publicized, would have left him open 
the grave to the grave medieval charge of black magic. But how did a manuscript attributed to Roger Bacon get to Rudolph's court in Prague between 1584 and 1588? Well, one of the emperor's most welcome visitors was Dr. John Dee, an English divine mathematician and astrologer who is sometimes said to have been the model for Prospero in The Tempest. Dee shared Rudolph's interest in the occult and was an enthusiast for Roger Bacon. Manuscripts of many, of many of whose works he had collected. He knew the young Francis Bacon and may have even introduced him to the works of Roger Bacon, which may help explain the similarities in their thought. D may have been aware of Roger Bacon, Bacon's own discussion of cryptography in the Epistle of the Secret Works of Art and the Melody of Magic. He certainly had some knowledge of and considerable interest in cryptology, for it, for in 1562 he bought from Sir William Cecil, Queen Elizabeth's great minister, a manuscript of Petronius's Stegonographia, which had not yet been published, and for which for which a thousand crowns had been had been offered, and yet could not be obtained. Dee spent ten days with uh, in continual labor, uh, making himself a copy of it. It may be that Dee um, had somehow obtained the mysterious Voynich manuscript, possibly from the Duke of North Northumberland, who pillaged many religious houses when Henry VIII broke up the monasteries and with whose family Dee was associated. It was, it was told or assumed that it was Bacon's, and I tried to solve it, and failing, made a gift of it to Rudolph. Dee made a gift of it to Rudolph, perhaps on behalf of Elizabeth, for whom he, for, for whom he was serving at Rudolph's court as a secret political agent. The English physician and writer Sir Thomas Brown, who incidentally first used the word cryptography in English, related that Dee's son, Dr. Arthur Dee, speaking about his father's life in Prague, told about the book containing nothing but hieroglyphics, which book his father bestowed much time upon, but could not uh, could not hear that he that, uh, but, but but could not uh, make it out. The comment may refer to this manuscript. Of course, it also could refer to the Book of Saga. This is conjectural, however. What is certain is that Kircher deposited the manuscript in the Jesuit Collegium Romanum, and that in 1912, an American rare book dealer named Wilford Bornich purchased it for an undisclosed sum from the Jesuit school of Mondragon in fascist Italy. Now, that is David Cohn's summary. And by the way, that that the Code Breakers is, is, is a classic classic book in the field, and I, I'm reading from the 1967 uh, volume. But but it, it, there's a, there's a revised 1996 one, uh, which is which is presently out. So so uh, I'm probably even updated. Now, as an update on Con's summary, 
It has recently been theorized that the Voynich Manuscript was created as an elaborate hoax by John Dee's collaborator, Edward Kelly. Now, of course, Kelly was an alchemist and a medium who channeled unknown languages, we know that. And he was also a forger and a swindler, and he was employed by Emperor uh, Rudolf II in Prague. Uh, however, the Voynich Manuscript has been dated to 1420 A.D., which is long before Dee and Kelly came on the scene in Prague in 1584 and 1588 A.D. Now, they might have sold the manuscript to Rudolf, but they certainly did not create it. Uh, there's a, a very good scene on the video, on the YouTube video on the Voynich manuscript, the, uh, the, the very good scene of Dee and Kelly uh, doing their Enochian work and then... And, uh, and uh, it, you know that that's an excellent video. Even though even though that uh, the idea that Kelly may have created this thing is uh, <laughs> has been discredited by the dates. Uh, but the hoax theory will not die. Some experts now, of course, remember an excess has been an expert as a group under pressure. Now, they, some experts cling to the idea that the manuscript was created to sell to a wealthy patron by an impoverished monk in the late Middle Ages. Now, this seems a ridiculous idea when we look at 200 pages of carefully rendered calligraphy without a single mistake. This is absolutely amazing. And remember now, it was done on parchment. It was quite common. One of the one of the advantages of parchment was you could you know you could if you made a mistake you could scrape it off and and which which the monks did quite often in fact they they <laughs> they even recycled the whole manuscript and they, they wiped every they 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 sanded everything off and 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 used the parchment again for something else and it was also suggested before the manuscript was scientifically dated and authenticated that its modern owner Wolfred Voynich. 1865-1930, who bought the manuscript from the Jesuits in 1912 and actually created it himself. Voynich, like Edward Kelly, was a kind of an unsavory character. He was imprisoned in Russia for revolutionary activity. He was a pre-Bolshevik socialist. Uh, most people don't remember, but the the uh, the, uh, the socialists in Russia had a had, they had a revolution back in 1905 that, that, that of course preceded the 1912 the, uh, the 1918 Bolshevik revolution. Now he escaped to England, where he continued his political intrigues. Now one is reminded of Corso, the sleazy rare book dealer in the Ninth Gate, when reviewing the career of Wilfred Voynich. After his death in 1930, the manuscript eventually passed on to another rare book dealer in New York, H.P. Krauss, who, after trying to decipher and translate it, donated it to Yale University in 1969. Yale published a beautiful facsimile edition in 2016, which we are referring to in this broadcast. Subsequent study of the manuscript at Yale has yielded a clue to where it may have been created. On page, or folio 86, which is a fold-out, the largest fold-out in the book, in the up corner is a circular rendering that shows a castle on the left side of the circle. This castle 
has a row of swallowtail crenellations along its wall. This architectural motif was peculiar to northern Italy in the 1400s. This could indicate where research might concentrate to find the missing folios and perhaps the identity of the original author-illustrator of the world's most mysterious book. Now, in our opening remarks, we stated that another clue to the manuscript's origin might be found in another mysterious book from antiquity, a work published in 1670. I am referring to Comte de Gabelais by Abbey N. de Montfaucon de Villers. This is a hermetic Rosicrucian document dealing extensively with the interdimensional realms of the elemental beings and their relation with earthly human beings in our dimension. The French UFO authority Jacques Vallée has drawn heavily on the Comte de Gabelais to substantiate his theory that extraterrestrial aliens are actually beings from another dimension or a parallel world adjoining our own, and that our folklore, mythology, and scriptures are filled with examples of contact between these dimensions. Let us read from Discourse 5 of the Comte de Gabelais. I'm shuffling a whole bunch of books around here on the table. And, uh, oh, let's see here. Here we are. Discourse 5. This particular edition uh, of the Compete of Gabelais that, I, that I'm reading from has been, uh, has been updated with... Um, with things like uh, the Orphic hymns from uh, Thomas Taylor and what have you, but but this part of it is is still still from 1670. The reign of Europe in uh, this, by the way, is is um, is the mentor uh, speaking to uh, to the Comte. Reign of Europe in took it into his head to convince the world that the elements are inhabited by these peoples whose nature I have just described to you. The expedient of which he bethought himself was to advise the sylphs to show themselves in the air to everybody. They did so sumptuously. These beings were seen in the air in human form, sometimes in battle array, marching in good order, halting under arms or encamped beneath magnificent tents, sometimes on wonderfully constructed aerial ships whose flying squadrons roamed at the will of the zephyrs. What happened? Do you suppose that the ignorant age wouldn't so much as reason as to the nature of these marvelous spectacles? The people straightway believed that sorcerers had taken possession of the air for the purpose of raising tempests and bringing hail upon their crops. The learned theologians and jurists were soon of the same opinion as the masses, and the emperors believed it as well. And this ridiculous chimera went so far that the wise Charlemagne, and after him Louis de Debonnier, imposed grievous penalties upon all those supposed tyrants of the air. And you may see an account of this 
in the first chapter of the capitularies of these two emperors, the sylphs, seeing the populace, pendants, and even the crowned heads thus alarmed against them, determined to dissipate the bad opinion people had of their innocent fleet by carrying off men from every locality and showing them their beautiful women, their republic, and their manner of government, and then setting them down again on earth in diverse parts of the world. And they carried out their plan. And the people who saw these men as they were descending came running from every direction, convinced beforehand that they were sorcerers who had separated from their companions in order to come and scatter poisons uh, on the fruit and in the springs. And carried away by the frenzy with which such fancies inspired them, they hurried these innocents off to the torture. And a great number of them, and a great number of them, were put to death by fire and, and water throughout the kingdom. And, and uh, one day, among other instances, it chanced at Leon that three men and a woman were seen descending from one of these aerial ships. The entire city gathered about them, crying out that they were magicians and were sent by Grimaldus, Duke of uh, Beneventum, Charlemagne's enemy, to destroy the French harvests. In vain, the four innocents sought to vindicate themselves by saying that they were their own country folk and had been carried away of for a short time since uh, since by miraculous men who had shown them unheard of marvels and had desired them to give an account of what they had seen. Well, the frenzied populace paid no, no heed to their defense and were on the point of casting them into the fire when the worthy Agobard, Bishop of Leon, who, having been a monk in that city, had acquired considerable authority there, came running at the noise, and having heard the accusations of the people and the defense of the accused, gravely pronounced that both one and the other were false, that it was not true that these men had fallen from the sky, and that what they said that they had seen there was impossible. And the people believed what their good father, Agobrand, said, rather than their own eyes, when they were pacified and set at, and set at liberty the four ambassadors of the sylphs, and, uh, and received with wonder the book which Agobard wrote to confirm the judgment which he had pronounced. And thus the testimony of these four witnesses was rendered vain. This begins to sound like the men in black, you know. <laughs> Yeah, what you've seen is the planet Venus. <laughs> Nevertheless, as they escaped with their lives, they were free to recount what they had seen, which was not altogether fruitless, for, as you will recall, the age of Charlemagne was prolific of heroic men, and this would indicate that the woman who had been in the home of the sylphs found credence among the ladies of that period, and that by the grace of God... Many sylphs were immortalized. Many sylphids also uh, became immortal through the account of their beauty, which these three men gave, which compelled the people of those times to apply themselves somewhat to, to, to philosophy, and thence 
are, are derived. All the stories of the fairies which you find in the love legends of the age of Charlemagne and of those which followed. Uh, now, there, there's a couple commentaries on, uh, attached to this that are that I want to read. One commentary is, is on the storm wizards. The storm wizards, in these regions, nearly all men noble and of low degree, town folk and country folk, old and young, think that hail and thunder can be produced at the will of man. For on hearing thunder and seeing lightning, they say, it is a raised breeze. And when asked what they mean by raised, they aver some shamefacedly others with confidence that it is the manner of the unexperienced that the storm has been raised by the incantations of certain men who are called storm wizards. And hence the expression, whether this common belief agrees with the facts is a matter to be proved by the authority of the whole of Holy Scripture. And that's that's part of the writings of, of uh, Bishop Ingerberg. All right, now. The four ambassadors of the sylphs. And this is another of Agobard's quotes. The four ambassadors of the sylphs. We have, however, seen and heard many men plunged in such great stupidity, sunk in such depths of folly as to believe and say that there is a certain region which they call Magonia, whence ships sail in the clouds in order to carry back to that region those fruits of the earth which are destroyed by hail and tempests. The sailors paying rewards to the storm wizards and themselves receiving corn and other produce. Out of the number of those whose blind folly was deep enough to allow them to believe these things possible, I saw several exhibiting in a certain concourse of people, four persons in bonds, three men and a woman, whom they said had fallen from these same ships after keeping them for some days in captivity. They had brought them before the assembled multitude, and as we have said, in our presence to be stoned, but truth prevailed. Now, all these so-called fairies were only sylphids and nymphs. And uh, the mentor asks uh, the Gambolet, and did you ever read any of these histories of, of heroes and fairies? And the Gambolet answered that he had not. And now, Jacques Vallée, the French um, UFO expert, wrote a, a whole book uh, based on on what uh, you know on the bishop's observations and what had happened, and he called it Passport to Magonia. Now, uh, my copy has has since walked away, but I do remember the book. and And Jacques Vallée uh, has been collecting data on UFOs for you know, the past uh, sixty years or so, and he is of the considered opinion that UFOs are not just extraterrestrial, but they are also and essentially interdimensional. Now, of course, one thing that you have to understand is if you're going <laughs> to, if 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 anybody's going to travel from one solar system to another, they're going to have to go through another dimension because uh, the speed of light being what it is. Um, so, 
And yet, at the same time, the, uh, the theory of parallel worlds and, 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 and other dimensions is, is gaining more and more and more credence uh, as, as time goes by. And, and it would seem, and Dr. Play thought, and, and, uh, and we might agree with him, that uh, Magonia is, is another, an extra-dimensional uh, an extra-dimensional uh, inhabited uh, country, if you will, perhaps dry islands, uh, and and uh, that the Magonians, I think, quite proud possibly have their own language, and and uh, and uh, so we we're, and naturally we we wonder if 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 the Voynich manuscript is. A text is written in Magonian and in the Magonian language and with the Magonian alphabet. Then how are you possibly going to going to you know, going to decipher it? You'd have to translate it, and the only person who could do that is someone who who uh, who uh, speaks and reads Magonian. And uh, so anyway, that that is the reason why I uh, I submit that this that, that the company de Gabalay is possibly possibly the key to the uh, to the mystery. Now, Voynich manuscript, if it's written in Magonian, then only one who can read Magonian can understand it, and there is no cipher involved here. You must go to Magonia and learn to speak and read Magonian, or solicit a Magonian scholar to provide an English translation. Perhaps this can be accomplished on the astral plane. Uh, now, before we uh, before we uh, go further with this, there, there's uh, something that, that I I do need to mention. Uh, there is, if you study the uh, the Voynich manuscript as as the uh, academics at Yale have been doing, uh, you will discover a few plants that, that that do exist on Earth. There seems to be a water lily, but it isn't. It isn't on the water. And uh, there's some Venus flytraps and and uh, and what looks like you know snapdragons or whatever. Uh, but the important discovery that they made, and uh, I think we we certainly mention, is that on uh, Folio 86. We don't have it mentioned here. On page or folio 86, which is a fold-out, in the upper right corner is a circular rendering that shows a castle on the left side of, of the circle. Now, this castle has a row of swallowtail crenellations along its wall. This architectural motif is peculiar to northern Italy in the 1400s, and it could indicate where research might concentrate to find the ten missing folios and perhaps the identity of the original author-illustrator of the world's most mysterious book. Now, does this discredit uh, Armagonian theory? Not necessarily, because uh, it could have been, you know, according to to uh, according to um, Habillard and his uh, at his time back during the back during the Charlemagne era. When the Holy Roman Empire was 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 founded, uh, the the Celts were obviously trying to 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 get along. They were the Magonians were were were, were sending uh, were taking taking people to, up to Magonia and 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 and, and, and making making ambassadors and missionaries, if you will, out of them. 
and sending him back to Earth. So quite possibly uh, this uh, uh, this manuscript could have been created in, in northern Italy as the as the little drawing of the castle suggests it might have been, and and, uh, and written by a Magonian in Magonian, you know, I mean in in, in Magonian language. So this is this is quite possible, and uh, it is uh, it is written on parchment that seems to be indigenous to that area at that time. So um, so all in all, um, the the very fact that uh, the, the, if, if it turns out the manuscript was in fact written. Uh, written uh, here on 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 mundane earth on our parchment, and we, we're using our ancient chemicals that that certainly could have been written by Magonian. I naturally then the first question arises: Well, where where are other documents in Magonian? Well, and, and a, lot, a number of them may have been destroyed, and that's uh, that's quite possible. Uh, now, so. You must go to Magonia and learn to speak Magonian or solicit a Magonian scholar providing this translation. Perhaps this could be accomplished on the astral plane. A remarkable channeling effort similar to the Arantia book. Now, frankly, I don't want to take on this project, but I would like to encourage any psychics listening to consider it and any Magonians listening to help them out. And I would like to do a little promotion for my own fictional version of Magonia, complete with sky islands, sailing airships, knights on flying dragons, and even Enochian magic. It's called Drawmaster by Pokranian, and you can order it on Amazon. Now, don't confuse Drawmaster with the recent fantasy novel titled, titled Magonia by Maria Dehavna Headley or the Jacques Vallée Passport to Magonia. We may do a show on these two titles. Magonia, in fact, in fiction, and that just about wraps up, up what we have. What we have on on the Voynich manuscript. I very much encourage those of you who uh, who are interested in in the manuscript to uh, acquire this beautiful uh, this beautiful Voynich manuscript facsimile that Yale University has has produced in 1916, and uh, it has an introduction by Deborah Harkness, who is a, a John D. scholar. So she has, she has her own insights uh, on, on the D situation, which are worth reading. And, uh, and I, I strongly recommend that book. And I would say that, that if you're interested in secret codes and, and, and this, this whole business, and certainly, uh, certainly check out the updated version of David Kahn's The Code Breakers, which is a classic. Uh, that just about wraps it up. Until next week, have a good week and good magic.